Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we are here recording Lost in the Woods. Welcome back for another week. We've had a weird month. It's been super crazy. We've been out hiking and backpacking. We've been super busy. I just got home from Leavenworth, did some river floating and fun stuff there. So yeah. And we also posted our video from the Enchantments on our Patreon, along with some other stuff we'll have uh, from our most recent hike. So go and check us out on Patreon. If you haven't done so already, there's a ton of bonus episodes that you can listen to on there. We also do our, um, there's a couple hiking treks on there. Yep. And we do, we go out and we pick a case that we've done. Mm-hmm. We travel to where that case took place and we hike and photograph where these people spend Video their last log. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a little dark, but we can't help ourselves. Technically, so. it's actually dark tourism is what it's considered. Yeah. So if you want to check that out, go and see our Patreon. We have quite a few things on there, plus our hiking with Hannah, where we take my sister, who's not a hiker, into the woods, and we try not to kill her. Today, we are talking about a couple of Jane Does that were found in the Sierra Nevada forest. And full disclosure, this episode is very disturbing. On July 17 of 1984, at Squaw Creek Campground near Lake Tahoe, off a rural road in Placer County, California, a couple on their way to a relaxing day at Lake Tahoe saw what looked like a smoldering fire. Now, this is an area that does get some forest fires and things like that, so not the craziest thing to see what might be the remnants of a fire. It was coming from a campground not far from the road, and on further inspection, it was found to be the body of a young woman. Police were called, and Deputy Stephen Frick arrived on the scene pretty quickly. Now, this Jane Doe appeared to be between 14 and 17. She had blonde hair and blue eyes and weighed approximately 115 pounds. She had a yellow sweater on, and she had an antique wedding band on one of her fingers. She had duct tape covering her mouth and around her wrists and she appeared to have a stab wound of some kind on her back. She did not match any current missing persons descriptions, and she was surrounded by what appeared to be her belongings. There was a toothbrush, clothing, jewelry, books, including 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and a romance novel. The weirdest thing was there was also some diapers found with the body. The autopsy would determine that she had been alive when she was set on fire. No. Fuck no. no. Ugh. Testing showed that gasoline had been used as an accelerant, and a sketch artist is brought in to determine what the girl may have looked like. Everything is entered into the missing persons database, but nothing comes from any of it, and she is labeled a Jane Doe. So, Jane Doe number two. On June 24th, 1985, Martin's Creek Campground, so about 30 minutes from Lake Tahoe, the caretaker of the campground would find a box about two feet by two feet, and he opened the box, and inside was the decomposing body of a young woman who was naked except for a pair of underwear and white socks. She was around 20, 
and she was about five foot four and was curled into the fetal position. Which she would kind of have to be to fit into this box. This is a pretty small box. Yeah. She had brown hair and was about 120 pounds. There was also a blanket and some towels. So she had her hands and feet tied together and she was stuffed into what turned out to be a large popcorn cup box. Yeah, you know like the the movie theaters use like the buckets of popcorn. I think it's like one of those, like a box that those would come in. Like a cardboard box? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. A cause of death could not be determined as the remains were too decomposed, but they were able to get fingerprints, but they did not match anything. And she did have a chipped front tooth, and she also did not match any missing persons cases. Right, so really the only identifying thing that they have on her is this front chipped tooth, because she's too decomposed to get like a good like photo of what she looks like or anything mm-hmm. like that. But again, nothing in the missing person's database. Well, the chipped tooth could have came from her whole, her fighting. Right. Well, yeah, you never know. Police did consider that the two cases could be connected, but there were a lot of differences in them. So maybe not. Yeah. On October 14th, 1985, four months later, Gail Smith arrived at a rest stop in Texas and was planning on hitchhiking the 100 miles to go visit her mother. Her body would be found about 14 miles from Amarillo in a wooded area. She had been hit over the head and raped. She was tied up and her body was in the fetal position. There's a tie already. Mm-hmm. Benjamin Boyle would have been identified as the truck driver that picked her up. So her blood and her hair were found in his truck. And his fingerprints were found on the duct tape that had been used to bind Gail. That is a crucial one. That gets people. The fingerprints on the duct tape. Yeah, yeah. Because for some reason, no one ever thinks of that. I know. So police looked into the possibility that he may have been responsible for the Jane Doe that had been found in the box at Mardis Creek. Right, which is the second Jane Doe that was found. Yes. When they looked at his travel logs, they discovered that he had been in the area and fibers found on the body resembled fibers from a blanket found in his house. Could be a stretch. Mm -hmm. And there were some fibers from the rope that were similar to the rope found in his truck. Okay. Right, but he was only charged for the murder of Gail. Okay. Because they had stronger evidence in that case, I'm guessing. But police still believe that he is responsible for Jane Doe number two. Right. Which, I mean, I think because of the similarities in how they were found and things like that, I can understand why they would jump to that conclusion, but I also don't think there's any, like, concrete evidence of that. On October 20 of 1993, an episode of America's Most Wanted would there air. There it is again. There it is again. We're never getting rid of America's Most Wanted. It's <laughs> haunting us. It's constantly going to be there. Yeah. And at the end of this episode, they would show a tip line where anyone could report a crime. So not just like if you know anything about like this episode that we just aired, call this number. It was like, oh, and here's a tip line where crimes can be reported. Anonymous or not, you know, that kind of thing. 
There would be a woman that would call into the tip line and she would tell the operator that her name was Terry Knorr. She would have an incredible story to tell. She said that her sisters had both been murdered by her mother when she was 12 years old. Her mother's name was Teresa Knorr. Now, Terry, who, by the way, is named after her mother, Teresa. They call her Terry for short, though. She would tell the operator that she had been trying to tell her story for years and that no one would believe her. Which turns out she had literally told her story to police multiple times. Also to teachers and a counselor at her school. See, and her mom probably talked her way out of every one of those. Well, not only that, but Terry had had some issues with the law. So a lot of times when she would be telling this story, it would be when she was already in trouble for something, right? But yes, Teresa, we're going to talk about Teresa's nice little ability to talk herself out of some stuff. So Teresa Knorr was born Teresa Cross on March 14th, 1946. She had a very close relationship with her mother who died of a heart attack when she was 15. Her father had Parkinson's, and it was said that he vented his frustrations on Teresa and her sister, Rosemary. She dropped out of school at the age of 16. On September 29, 1962, at 16, she would marry Clifford Sanders. And they would have a son named Howard. Teresa was described as controlling and manipulative and would accuse Clifford of cheating on her continuously. And it was reported that he abused her on more than one occasion. Which, this is kind of a trend that we start to see. Uh, Teresa being very controlling, Teresa very insecure, thinking everybody's cheating on her, and also her accusing people of abuse as well. Mm -hmm. On July 6th of 1964, Teresa was pregnant with their daughter, Sheila, when her husband said that he was going to leave her. Good. And she ends up shooting him with a 30-30 rifle. That was not what I expected was going to happen. The slug would lodge in his heart, killing him after passing through his wrist. First of all, implying that he had put up his hand in self-defense or to shield himself from the gun, so probably saw it coming. But yes, she would claim self-defense. She would say that he was trying to kill her and that she shot him in self-defense. Yeah, so in her... If someone's watching someone pull a gun to their head or their face, even if they, even if the person that's shooting them is in self-defense, that person's still going to put their hands up. Like, still going like, to defend themselves, even if she was actually doing it in self-defense. Very true. I don't think him putting his hand up is a sign to say, like, it wasn't self-defense because... Right. And there are very mixed opinions on this. A lot of people believe wholeheartedly that... She was upset. She thought he was cheating. She went crazy and she ended up killing him and that he was never abusive. So we don't really know. Yeah. I mean, there's no way of knowing. There's no way of knowing. Now, she would claim self-defense and plead not guilty and would be acquitted. She told reporters as she was leaving the courthouse, all I want is to go home and take care of my baby. She did go to the police station, though, and request to get the gun back. 
She would give birth to a baby girl who she would name Sheila, and this would make her a single mother of two because, remember, she already has a son. When did she have a son? They already had a son. That was their first. They had a son right after getting married. Okay. I guess I missed that part. Mm-hmm. It is reported by people in her life that she would start drinking more around this time. Single mother of two? Yeah. Just murdered your husband? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I'd say yes. Yeah. In July of 1966, she would marry a man named Robert Knorr. He was a Marine who seemed to care for Teresa and her two children, and he even adopted them. So Howard and Sheila get adopted by the new husband. Cool. They would have four more children together. Suzanne, Robert, William, and Terry. So Terry is the one that calls... America's Most Wanted, later on. The youngest. Terry's a girl. Terry's a girl, yeah. Right. And Terry is the one that she named after herself. So her full name is Teresa, but they call her Terry. Teresa's jealousy problems did not go away. And Robert would actually leave her in 1969. And the couple would divorce by 1970. Wasn't like divorce not a thing? It wasn't very big like back it, then. It was yeah. not very big. And this mm-hmm. is her second husband that's been like, I want a divorce. Uh-huh. Yep. Does not seem on par for the time. I mean, I guess it's yeah. 69. It's 70. So I guess it yeah. more acceptable. More divorces, yeah. More, more time, I feel like, in the 70s. And Teresa would also claim that Robert was abusive. And she refused to allow him to see the children after he left. In 1973, at the age of 25, she would marry railway worker Ron Pullum. This marriage soon ended due to Teresa's controlling and jealous nature. She really was very jealous. That seemed to be like a prevailing issue that she had. In 1976, she would marry Chester Harris. But wait, she kept the Nor last name. I have no idea. That's that's what she's that's what she's called in most things. So it could just be that. Okay. It changes over time, but that's that's what everybody calls her because that's what she had the majority of her children with that one. Okay. I don't know why. Yeah. Okay, I'm just wondering because we started off calling her Nor, but now I'm that's not even yeah. her last husband. It's not. Or her maiden names. So. Yeah. And she is referred to as Teresa Knorr the most, even though her name does change multiple times, I believe. In 1976, she would marry Chester Harris, and he was 59, so quite a bit older than her. He was obese and had been married five times. He also smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. She's 28 at this point. Right. They married after only three days. Of knowing each other. Um, Continue. Yeah. He made it clear that he did not like Teresa's children, with the exception of Susan, her third oldest, who was 10 years old at this time. And this actually enraged Teresa. It should. It should. So Susan was like a big reader and... They talked a lot about books and stuff. It still gives me a creepy vibe, but either That's way... That's what I was thinking. There's no reports of him actually being creepy or inappropriate in any way, shape, or form. 
So we don't know that there was anything to this, but either way, it enraged Teresa and she became very jealous of the relationship between Susan and Chester. Because I just feel like it's weird the fact that he very clearly didn't like the rest of the children, but liked yeah. the one girl. Mm-hmm. Teresa would file for divorce after three months. And she became convinced that he had been a demon that may have also infected Susan. Oh my god, a demon. A deep. Well, how would you know if he's a demon or not? Because you... Literally married him after three days of knowing him. Mm-hmm. And we're only married to him for three months. You really, you know someone after three months? So Teresa kept their home immaculate. Which is not a sign of craziness. Just saying. Like clean? Yeah. Is this, she kept her home spick and span? Uh-huh. Maybe it's just the sign of a bored housewife. Could be. I don't think so, though. I think she's very crazy and controlling, but I'm just saying not all people who keep their house clean have a problem. I'm literally coming for you right now. <laughs> so, and her children were always behaved in public. Like, they were well-behaved little kids. Mm-hmm. So, Teresa's mental and physical health seemed to decline. So, she started having paranoid delusions and also gained some weight at this time, which is only relevant because she blames this weight gain on her daughter, Susan, because she's possessed by a demon. Yeah. Um, we'll talk more about that later. So she pulled her children out of school and refused to let them go anywhere. Good. That's the option. She also turned off their phone service. And according to the children, she became violent and abusive, and she would accuse her kids of doing things that they did not do. And would burn them with cigarettes and deprive them of sleep. And she would also beat them with the, in quotes, board of education. Right, which was a three-foot-long board that had tape around the bottom of it, like a handle to fashion a handle. And it said board of education on it. Dude, people have no souls. I, she even forced her other children to hold the accused children down so she could beat them. Yeah, and so at one point, too, she also locked her daughter Terry in a freezer when she told someone that her mother wasn't taking care of her and her siblings. And this would become a trend with Terry from a young child into adulthood is trying to tell people what's what's happening. happening. Right. So according to William, one of the sons, in the documentary, Evil Lives Here, one day she was excited to show her children how good she was at throwing knives. Like, what? And she had William stand in front of a wall and she threw knives at him. Missing him every time. But when it was Sheila's turn, she got stabbed in the shoulder but blamed Sheila for moving. Yeah, I wouldn't want to stand in front of her while she threw knives. Um, yeah, no. Most of the information that we have about the childhood of these children comes straight from them. Years later, after they are all adults. Like, Mm -hmm. there's been books written on this. There's been documentaries on this. There's a lot of information out there. So we are also getting all of this information from an adult telling it from their childhood perspective. So... Um, 
she also tended to focus a lot of her anger on her daughters who couldn't seem to do anything right. So she forced Susan and Sheila into prostitution and she took all of this money from the prostitution from them. What in the fuck? She also became very religious. Why does that, oh, that happens with psychotic breaks all the time. I know. You have a psychotic break and you become like crazy religious. Mm-hmm. I want to know what the correlation is. I don't really know. And she spent a lot of time reading her Bible and scriptures to her children. Yeah. Now, at one point, she accuses Susan of being a witch that cast a spell on her to make her fat. So she was basically saying that Susan cast a spell on her that was taking fat from Susan's body and putting it on her. I I literally don't even know what to say about that. But she would... No, like... Uh, <laughs> How delusional are you? You're very delusional. To have put some weight on and be like, oh my god, my daughter. Yeah. My daughter, she she's a witch spell. That's why I gained Mm -hmm. weight. Not just like the natural progression of time or Right. She would actually force feed her large amounts of macaroni and cheese. She would add lard to it to try to fatten her up more. And if she threw up, she would then make her eat her vomit. My God, this what the things fuck? are things Where are going downhill. Where is Child Protective Services? Well, they're coming. Hold on. Where are they? One day, Susan ran away and went to the police. Susan tells the police about everything that's going on in their house, and caseworkers are sent to the house, where Teresa, of course, denies all of the claims of abuse, and none of the other children will speak against her because they're actually being interviewed in a room. With their mother in the room. Good. Yeah, let's do that. That's a great fucking idea. Yeah, and I don't understand why this would ever be an effective way to interview children. It's not. At the end of the day, Susan would be returned to her mother. And things would really take a turn for the worse at this point. Susan is actually handcuffed under the dining room table, according to her brothers. And this goes on for years. She's also force-fed under the table. And at one point, and there are are varying reports on what actually happened here, but at one point, Susan is shot in the stomach after having an argument with her mother. And one report that I read said that Teresa is the one that shot her. And another report that I read said that Teresa handed the gun to one of the younger children to hold it on Susan— while she left the room to go get something, I don't really understand why that would happen. Either way, a gun is fired and Susan is shot in the stomach. Jesus. Now, Susan is not taken to the hospital and instead she is carried into the bathtub where she is somehow nursed back to health and eventually moved back under the dining room table about a month later. And she begged her mother to let her go. And she promised that she would not tell anyone what had happened in their house. But Teresa would not let her go. Now, eventually, Susan did wear her mother down. And eventually, she does agree that she would let her go on one condition. And that is that she be allowed to remove the bullet that's lodged it's lodged in Susan's back now because it didn't go all the way through. It entered and it went up and is stuck in her back. 
That way, if Susan broke her promise and told anybody about what was going on, there would be no physical evidence to prove that there had been abuse. Susan agrees, and Teresa feeds her a bunch of pills and a huge amount of whiskey until Susan passes out. And she's laid on the kitchen floor, and an X-Acto knife is used for the procedure. Now, she does get the bullet out. And from what the children say, she flushes it down the toilet. But when Susan wakes up, she is in horrific pain and eventually slips into a coma. Okay, so Susan's in a coma, but Teresa is convinced that she's faking it. And Susan is left on the kitchen floor. She does eventually lose control of her bladder. And this is when Teresa starts to put diapers on her. Susan then turns yellow from sepsis and jaundice, and Teresa was convinced that this was proof of her being possessed by a demon, and she believed the only way to get rid of the demon was with fire. Oh my god, so she's the Jane Doe number one. Yep. Fucking A, what the fuck? Where's Child Protective Services? They need to do better. They don't do good enough. They don't do good enough. I know. She put duct tape over Susan's mouth and tied her up and then instructed her sons to load her up into the car with all of her belongings. They drive to a secluded area and unload her and all of her belongings. And then her brothers pour gasoline over her and her things. That's where there were diapers. Yep. She had William light a match and throw it on her. Now, William actually says later on that they poured gasoline all over Susan's things and then tried to put the gas can down, and she said that they needed to pour it over Susan as well. And they did. She had William light a match and throw it onto Susan, and then they drove off. On the drive home, a bird actually smacked into the windshield, and Teresa told her sons that this was a sign from God that they had done the right thing. I can't. Now, with Susan gone, Teresa starts to focus on Sheila. Some things that Sheila endured were being force-fed with so much force that it actually broke her front tooth. She beat her, demanding that she confess to transmitting a venereal disease to her mother from the toilet seat. So, Teresa gets a venereal disease, and she is convinced that Sheila gave it to her and that she contracted it from the toilet seat. Dumbass. She also believed that Sheila had been possessed by a demon, and she eventually tied her up and locked her in the closet. And this is a very small, like, broom closet. She would be locked in the closet for weeks at a time, and her siblings were threatened if they tried to let her out or sneak her food. But they did it anyway. But Sheila wasn't even strong enough to eat or drink. She could be heard talking about climbing toward a light in the closet, and then they heard a thump. And within days, a smell started to come from the closet. And when Teresa finally opened the door, Sheila's lifeless body fell out. Robert brought a popcorn cup box that he found at his work because he worked at the local movie theater. They loaded her into the box and loaded it into the car, and they drove to a secluded place where they got out of the car to dig a hole 
when a police officer pulled up behind them. Teresa told the officer that they had stopped for her sons to use the bathroom, and the police officer told them to move along. Apparently, he did not recognize the smell of decomposition because the brother said that it was horrendous in the car. They then immediately left there because they didn't want to be associated with the area. They drove to Martis Creek Lake and dumped her there. Terry was put in charge of cleaning the closet while they were gone, and I'm sure spent her time contemplating her own fate. Because think about it. Her two older sisters have now been murdered by her mother. Like, you have to think that you're next in this situation. Now, Terry said during her interview with Cold Case Files that there were pieces of her sister's face on the floor of the closet. Like, that is so fucked up. Terry is 15 and recalls a conversation she had with Sheila about Susan telling her that their mom was going to kill her and then kill Sheila. Mm -hmm. And then Terry had a conversation with Sheila before her death that their mom was going to kill Sheila and then she was going to kill Terry. So the cycle... Just keeps getting dropped down from daughter to daughter. And Terry begged her mom to let her go. And her mom actually agreed, saying that you can leave on one condition. Their house still smelt like death. And on September 29th, 1986, she would have to go in and dump lighter fluid all over the apartment and set it on fire. After doing this... Terry left her mom for good. So that was their deal, is if Terry burned down the apartment, she could leave. Right. Now, after this, Teresa moves to Salt Lake City, Utah. Since all of her children had either died or left her, because her sons have all grown and left her house now as well. Yeah. Because Terry's the youngest at 15. Right. Which means that her brothers are probably like 17, 18-ish. Mm-hmm. She cuts her hair, and she started wearing a blonde wig. And also wearing nice clothing. This is the story, right? Like, this is the story that Terry is telling. And police don't have any tissue samples from the bodies that were found. But Terry is actually able to explain all of the wounds and even articles of jewelry and clothing that the girls had been wearing. And when police actually ran fingerprints that they had lifted from a nearby plastic bag they ended up coming back to Terry's brother, Robert. Yeah, there you go. I'm sorry, but her story that she says already, I think, has some... Obviously, yeah. Has some weight to it. Like, oh, why were there diapers at the scene when this person obviously isn't in Mm -hmm. diaper-wearing age? Oh, well, she was in a coma, so my mom was putting diapers on her because she couldn't control her bowels. Exactly. So basically, she's able to explain some of the questions that police had. Yeah, so... Now... They also find out that her brother, William, had worked at the movie theater and she was able to explain Sheila's broken front tooth. They are sure that these two girls are probably Terry's sisters and that she's telling the truth. Wow. Too little too late, guys. What a great detective you are. I know. Round of applause. I know. Doing light round of applause so that I don't fuck up the... Yeah. Good job. Good job. You deserve 
the detective of the goddamn. Well, this one might because they actually like tried to figure it out. In November of 1993, arrest warrants are issued for Teresa and her two sons, William and Robert. Robert is found in a Nevada prison where he is serving time for shooting and killing a bartender two years earlier. William is found in Woodland, California. Teresa would prove to be a little more difficult to find as she had moved to Salt Lake City and reverted to her maiden name of Cross. So she's going by Teresa Cross in Salt Lake City. And that made her hard to find. I guess. Well, I mean, there's a lot of Teresas out there. She had been working as a caretaker for an elderly woman named Alice Sullivan who suffered from Parkinson's, which is kind of funny because that's what her dad suffered from. And she quickly became the best live-in nurse that Alice had ever had and even bought presents for Alice's granddaughters because she said she never had any daughters of her own. Isn't that so fucked up? When police showed up, she had withdrawn $4,000 and given notice to her employer and had already packed her bags. So she was about to be in the wind. Either way, though, she plays dumb. And I have an audio, I have an audio clip of her interview. Are you aware that you're charged with two counts of murder, Teresa? No. Well, I'm now telling you. I'm apparently the first to inform you that you're charged with two counts of murder. What, what is your reaction to that? Disbelief. Do you know who you're charged with having murdered? No, I do not. I don't. Mm-hmm. By the way, she has been told that she's playing dumb. This was all part of her like insanity defense. She plays dumb a lot. Annoying. Very annoying. Now, both of her sons would testify against her. Robert would receive one count of accessory after the fact. And William would be sentenced to probation and mandatory therapy. Teresa is charged with two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, two counts of special circumstances charges, and multiple murder and murder by torture charges. So, surprise, surprise, she pled not guilty. Yeah. But after learning that her sons would testify against her, she changed her plea to guilty in order to avoid the death penalty. I hate. I hate that, like, you murdered these people and you're afraid to die. Are you fucking kidding me? They're always afraid to die. On October 17 of 1995, she was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences and will be eligible for parole in 2027 at the age of 81. I hope she dies before then. Me too. Robert was released in 2013. William lives a relatively normal life and has shared his story with the TV show Evil Lives Here. So there's a bunch of interviews of him on that show. Terry actually dies of heart failure in 2011 at the age of 41, but she did share her story with cold case files before her death. So you can also hear parts of her story on that. According to the Los Angeles Times, Teresa's sister Rosemary Norris was also murdered in 1983 She was strangled and dumped in Placer County, and her case is unsolved. Which I think is just too crazy to be unrelated to anything. I don't know. Was she jealous of her sister, I wonder? Doesn't that seem crazy? 
I don't know. It's suspicious. I find it a little suspicious, too. But that is the story of Susan Knorr and Sheila Sanders, which is what Sheila's last name was. And their mother, Crazy Teresa Knorr. It's just crazy. I literally don't even know. Not okay. Right? So, so sorry about that, you guys. I find this case particularly disturbing because I do not understand how a mother could do something like this to her children. It just does not sit well with me. So Maddie and I are going to go and try to think happier thoughts right now. If you want to see some baby goats, go look at our social media. We posted a video on there from our last hike. We also have a full video of our hike on our Patreon as well, which has even more baby goats in it. Maybe that will help. It might. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and then tonight we're going to go out and we're going to make s'mores on our new fire pit. Or a smokeless fire pit. Yeah, so we got this fire pit from Bowls of Fire. It's really cool. It's like this huge stainless steel fire pit. It has like a little grate that that swings around and you can cook food and barbecue on it and stuff it's like a smokeless version it's amazing so we're gonna go make some s'mores on that i'm excited i want some s'mores so good all right thank you guys so much for tuning in and we will talk to you soon yeah bye We are back at it this week. I've been working. Maddie's been working. And next week she's working again and I'm leaving for another backpacking trip. So I think all in all my summer's probably a tiny bit more exciting than Maddie's, but um, not a lot. I would say a little bit more. A bit more. A bit a, more? A, a good amount more. Okay. Uh, we did just get back from Gothic Basin. We did an overnight there. It was some brutal uphill, but it was amazing the views were incredible yeah yes but we survived the night um there's probably by now pictures of us on instagram with a mosquito net over our heads that definitely happened the only way i survived so if patty is next to me she doesn't normally get bit so she's safe while we were sitting there with the mosquito nets on our heads, I got like seven bug bites around my knees for some reason. I don't know why I had pants on. You were wearing leggings, though. They can bite you through leggings. And my leggings were covered in bug spray. They didn't give a fuck. They did not. It all that, that one literally depends on the person. It's like when we hiked the last hike and we saw the dead deer in the lake and half the people oh we told about the dead deer were like, oh, poor deer. Or one group was like, oh. Like they didn't, we There's thought it, okay, we thought it was really cool. So there was like this half frozen lake and in the lake we could see something and it was in, it was in like kind of the shallow area, which is still really deep Which in is lake. still like five to six feet down, by the way. It's right. Like a crystal clear lake. It's crystal clear. So you can see really good. And we could see something in the lake and we were like, what is that? So we got closer to it. And it was, it was calling to me. Yeah. It was screaming my name from the bottom of the lake. Yeah. <laughs> so we got closer and it was like a deer. And it was just, like, laying at the bottom of the lake, and the, it was mostly bone at this point, 
but like the head's like not there at all. There's no head bones at all. Yeah, the head is gone. It the looks, spine is like separated. It looks, I mean, it was just so. I think it was cool. For me, I think it was cool okay, because. I thought it looked, I thought it, okay, it was a very like almost. Uh, I don't know. It was an experience. I and had to stop myself from swimming down. Into my mom had to stop me from. Swimming she wanted to go it. and get a bone. Well, and I, I was knew like, it wasn't no. possible. I knew it wasn't yeah. possible because it was too deep. But like, but we did think it was really cool. Like at some point, this poor deer probably fell through, through the, the ice. ice and couldn't get back out again because the water had only recently started to. Yeah, and it definitely thaw. hadn't been there since like last summer. No, like, it, it, it's it was definitely like, like this season for sure, and so. Like, we just thought it was, like, a really cool It's thing. not something you see all the time. We do a lot of hiking. I have never seen a dead deer at the bottom. I've seen fish bones and stuff at the bottom of lakes. Right, but, like, an entire deer. An entire deer. Yeah. So we were, like, we ran into a hiker coming down, and he. I was, like, he stayed at that lake. We had stayed at a different one, but he stayed at that lake. And we were, like, oh, did you see the deer? So he was, like, oh, my gosh, now I want to go back and see the deer. And we were, like, kind of chatting about it. And he was, like, did you guys take a picture of it? And we were, like, yeah. And then at this point, two other girls come up and we're, like, talking about this deer that we saw at the lake. And so we, like, show him the picture and he's, like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. He's, and then, like, I want to hike back up and go see it now. Yeah. Like, I and missed then, it. And then the girls step, but one of the girls steps over and she looks at it and she's, like, oh, oh poor deer. I, I thought you guys were talking about a live deer. <laughs> And then I felt really judged. <laughs> they, yeah, we got a lot of different mixed things. Reactions from it. But um, the guy was definitely my favorite. I want to hike back up. I want to see it. Because he hiked right past it and just was he going it. up yeah. instead of looking down at the lake. But um, it was crazy. But yeah, yeah so it's every, one of those things where you never quite You know. never quite know. Yeah. 